0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event.
1: Good morning and welcome to this IFG live event on the future of UK trade policy. 2020 was supposed to be the year that the UK stepped out into the global stage with its independent trade policy. Having left the EU on the 31st of January, the UK can now negotiate new trade agreements with them able to come into force once we've formally left the transition period. Now, we heard over the last three or four years about the potential for the UK's trade policy, from the deals waiting to be signed, the potential role in revitalising the WTO and revitalising global trade more generally. But then came along the worst public health crisis in living memory. Is coronavirus rain on the wedding day for the UK's trade policy, or will it change global trade forever? How should the UK government's trade policy adapt to coronavirus? What are the priorities for the UK in its debutant year? Here to discuss these questions and many, many more, we have got a fantastic panel. Um, we have got Meredith Crowley, international trade economist at the University of Cambridge and senior fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. We've got Pauline Bastardon, former head of global and EU policy at the Freight Transport Association, Hosok Lee Makiyama, director of the European Centre for Political uh, for International Political Economy, and Clemens Kober, director of trade policy at the German Chamber of Commerce and former negotiator on the EU-US trade agreement, TTIP. Before we dive into questions, some brief housekeeping. This event is on the record. A recording will be available afterwards. Please do tweet along using the hashtag IFGCorona. Please do send in your questions using the chat function, using the, the, the q and function that you will see on your screen. Please don't feel the need to wait till the end. Just fire them in as and when they come up and we will try and take questions as we move through. Um, I think that is all. I think this is usually the slot where we talk about uh, what you do in case of a fire alarm. But as you can see, we are already outside the building assembled. Um, I want to try and start then getting into the detail on the questions um, and to start picking the panellists brain on what we think coronavirus has meant for international trade so far. What can we already tell about the implications that it's having. And Meredith, I wanted to come to you first, if I may, um, and to start your view on what we know already about coronavirus's impact on global trade. What can we tell?
2: So already we know that this is going to have a huge hit on global trades. So the WTO is forecasting a decline in global trade of between 10 and 30 percent. Um, unfortunately, that could even end up being a low estimate. Um, We know in the the great trade collapse of 2008, 2009, that global trade fell 17%, trade on the US um, fell 20%. And for the UK, when GDP during the financial crisis fell 5%, trade fell 15%. So we know that trade always falls much more than GDP, We know GDP this time around is going to fall around the world in a much more synchronized fashion than in 2008, 2009. And we know that trade falls, you know, at least two, often three times as much um, as GDP. So this will be uh, quite bad.
1: Okay, so we know we can tell then on a kind of aggregate level just the the size of the impact potentially likely. Pauline, how is this playing out on a practical level? How well have supply chains, particularly in the UK, adapted so far? We've kind of got past the, the toilet roll problems uh, and arguably the food supply's held up pretty well. I mean, what's your take on where things are at a practical level, including things like logistics and kind of prices?
0: So, you know, disruption started, in fact, uh, at the beginning of February already. So I remember until then, uh, all we were talking about uh, with members involved in international logistics was Brexit preparations uh, to a large extent. Um, And all of a sudden, everything shifted. uh, And of course, because the crisis started to impact China, which is uh, the source of many products uh, that end up in the UK, uh, we could see the disruption pretty much immediately, Um, and we could see that both in terms of production, of course, uh, from China, but also in terms of transport uh, to and from uh, China and the rest of Asia as well. Uh, So we saw a a drop, a reduction in the global uh, container volume of uh, 8.6% in February 2020 compared with February 2019, uh, the previous year. Um, And as a result, and because there weren't that many products to move anymore uh, from uh, China to to the UK, uh, we saw a lot of what we call blank sailings, meaning that uh, essentially, uh, you know, services that were supposed to be provided in terms of uh, schedule of uh, maritime crossings uh, were were reduced. Uh, Some services were just pulled from the the schedule. Uh, Some stops were cancelled. Uh, And we we saw uh, in total, I think, uh, since then, uh, around uh, 450 blank sailings. So, of course, that's not just for the UK, that's that's globally, uh, but it's pretty enormous um, and obviously a lot of disruptions as a result. Uh, So, fortunately... The effects went to visible at that point, because uh, especially when you're shipping from China, you tend to have big inventories uh, lasting for a few weeks. So there are lots of buffers in place, of course, uh, you know, on, even, even before the crisis. It's, it's quite it's quite normal because disruptions are uh, unfortunately relatively common when you come from from so far away. Um, I think what we started to see then uh, with the toilet rolls, food and so on, was that basically consumer buying patterns were changing in the UK. Uh, We saw a lot of panic buying, uh, and that's what created a lot of the disruptions. Uh, Of course, as the second wave of the crisis, we then saw declining demand um, in the the UK for a number of products. Uh, So logistics started to suffer in non-food related sectors in particular. Um, And I think most recently we've seen a huge uh, spike in terms of PPE and health related um, items. Um, the other factor to take into account is that um, for certain goods, of course, uh, they're not transported by um, maritime transport because it would be too slow because it's several weeks. They would be transported traditionally uh, in the belly hold of passenger aircraft. Uh, and you can see where this is going. Of course, when um, a lot of flights, passenger flights had to be canceled overnight, uh, we saw a huge decrease in capacity uh, with companies having to rely on freighters. And we've seen... Uh, Prices, in some cases, multiplied by 10 uh, from before the crisis and and, and during the crisis. Um, In terms of goods that were coming from a little bit closer, so from continental Europe uh, in particular, we've seen initially a lot of disruptions um, because of border controls uh, imposed by certain member states. uh, In some cases, quarantines of logistics workers as well, uh, including drivers at the very beginning, which meant that things were uh, not as smooth as they would usually be. Uh, the situation has improved, but you can still see, uh, of course, that there are um, uh, difficulties in terms of delays and so on. In terms of the, the future, I mean, I think everything depends very much on how demand starts to pick up uh, in the in the UK. And if we see that with the recovery, there's more demand. Uh, obviously, the economy will be a bit better than than the worst forecast. Uh, but if it's continues to be slow, I think we're going to continue seeing that kind of things uh, for the foreseeable future.
1: That's really, really helpful. Hosuk, I wanted to to bring you in uh, now because we've kind of heard the kind of uh, the macro level picture from Meredith and then also the real practical challenges um, from, from Pauline. How do you think countries' trade policies have started to adapt to this new environment? Do you think trade policy has already played a role in kind of mitigating some of the impact of coronavirus or actually exasperating it?
3: Well, one thing is very clear, uh, I think is that trade policy has become perhaps one of the most important tools in a sovereign's toolbox. But at the same time, it does not set the objectives. Trade policy doesn't exist in a vacuum. Basically, the policy space for trade policy is basically what's left after economic policy, fiscal policy, and geopolitical complications of COVID-19 and, well, basically changing business pattern has already taken its huge chunks out of the political capital it's there. Which basically means, I think, I, I follow the same numbers as Meredith and uh, there are two observations that I would like to add to her observation, which is basically that First of all, we are looking at the biggest GDP drop uh, since the Second World War and uh, minus 6.5% for the UK uh, in terms of what kind of policy space that is available to actually do something. And we are looking at an economic output worth five trillion US dollars that's been just being wiped after the global economy and we haven't really seen the end yet. There's still a number of uncertainties across the uh, regions. We still don't know what the length of the shutdown is. Most of the estimates that we are looking at is looking at and um, basically everything ending after the or this the shutdowns ending at, after the summer. The recovery started in Q4. That could be right. That could be wrong. But we are still ignoring the fact that the emerging market is going through uh, a major change, especially considering that social distancing cannot be practiced in places like India or Brazil, as we've seen. There's going to be a debt crunch. There's going to be an adjustment in equity prices. So in all in all, all we know that COVID-19 has affected resourceful countries like the UK and Italy and Spain and United States and China. We, we, we really don't know the exact multiple between global trade and the GDP drop. And here's where I actually agree with Meredith that the shrinking of the trade is going to be considerable uh, not just because of lack of supplies and transport that we heard about, but it's going to be disproportionately higher for two reasons. Because it's going to be a huge demand contraction. People just there's, there's going to be less demand in the global system and people will be fighting for that demand. And which basically means that there's going to be there's going to be a, quite a bit of overcapacity, not least in the transport sector we heard about, and also the second reason is that the trade was already at a very low benchmark even before uh, the COVID-19, meaning that actually. Uh, we had just recovered in 2019 from the global financial crisis. So it took us nine years to get back to status quo in international trade. Then you can imagine what kind of adjustment we are looking at here. And here's where I'm getting, I would like to get back to the the first point, basically that trade policy is maybe secondary to many of the other disciplines, simply because export-led growth and recovery is simply not going to be on the table and uh, we are 2021 is not even in recovery it's a slow partial return to the previous level of economic activities and trade and if you look at uk as well as rest of europe we are looking at extremely trade dependent economies uk's trade export dependencies about 30 percent. germany and scandinavia goes even beyond that about 50 and a lot of people don't actually know the fact that the uk even countries like uk and france and italy and spain who are not considered to be very ex- very exporting led economies they have actually an export dependency that is much higher than china or united states or japan china is just roughly around 20% which basically means
1: that we are going to struggle more than many other economies OK, thank you very much for that. Pretty uh, grim ending. Um, Clemens, to bring you into this, what I mean, what are your members saying to you about the impact so far? And then I'll be interested in your perspective. of A lot of people, if we throw this forward, um, are kind of uh, questioning whether coronavirus will see a kind of increase in protectionism and uh, a move towards self-sufficiency. I mean, is that something that you were expecting or that you think there's any evidence of?
4: Yes, good morning. Absolutely. Um, I I can only agree with what has been said so far. Um, looking at our members, we represent uh, all 4 million business and have a network of around 150 chambers around the globe. So that's the perspective I'm going to have um, uh, giving you uh, our view right now. We've done a couple of surveys in the last couple of weeks and uh, they have been showing pretty disastrous results. So um, I would argue there are two crises here we are talking about. The first is the supply chain crisis that has been elaborated before. We have export controls. We have problems at the borders. Um, uh, Suppliers uh, themselves have problems supplying uh, what they produce. And then the second uh, crisis that uh, adds on to this is the crisis of demand. um, What has been said before, so global drop in demand and uh, that, of course, means that the global outlook for economies that depend a lot on trade. Uh, for Germany, uh, one in four jobs actually depends on trades. and in industry, it's uh, half of the jobs. So um, this is uh, not a positive outlook. We have um, seen in our last surveys that um, most of the companies um, uh, expect the decline of their business this year, um, around 80%. We um, have uh, one in four companies that have problems with their suppliers, with their supply chains. So 17% are already looking at how to deal with that. Um, and most are looking at uh, uh, new suppliers in Germany, uh, at least for the German companies. Um, we also have an interesting metric. Uh, you know, In Germany, we do the certificates of origin and uh, they are a quite good indicator in how Uh, trade is going and we've seen a drop um, of the certificates of origin uh, we issued um, in some parts of uh, going back to only 60 percent or less of the of the normal value now most are going up to around 80 percent again but um, i think it's very clear that uh, companies are being hit um I would say that I would argue that Corona is mainly um, accelerating trends that we have seen before, trends like um, protectionism, trends like um, regionalization of trade, and I would say most of them they are uh, structural. So um, if you look um, at a lot of political changes around the globe, at, uh, the discussion on decoupling. All of this will have impacts on on investment decisions of companies where they want to go, if there will be tariffs, if there will be non-tariff barriers, sanctions, uh, border checks, um, uh, and all of that. And um, uh, then, of course, we see a whole new uh, level of market concentration due to all the governments uh, stepping in uh, with their rescue packages. So uh, all in all, there will be, um, a very high market concentration and especially for the SMEs it will be a tough uh, environment in the future to to navigate in.
1: Thank you very much that is, that is very very helpful. Meredith just on this point around moving towards protectionism and um, Clemens's point around kind of accelerating trends. I was just wondering your perspective on whether you think that's the case, but also what are the things that we should be looking out for? What are the signs that will tell us what kind of direction we're moving in in the recovery period in terms of of global trade and how it's adapting?
2: With the question of protectionism, I want to draw a distinction between trade protectionism and I think what I would call rise in economic nationalism or sort of pro-economic nationalism policies. And so on the trade protection side, um, first thing is going back to the global financial crisis. Um, At that time, we did not see the typical rise in import protection that we had seen in sort of the previous 20 or 30 years. So at the start of the global financial crisis, the G20 came together and said, we understand that import restrictions are damaging to economic well-being for everyone, so we'll all refrain from doing that. And they did. And so if we looked at the size of the recession at that time, Um, Some work Chad Bowne and I did predicted that 14% of EU non-oil imports would be subject to import tariffs, and in fact only 2% were. Looking at the U.S., we were predicting 15% of U.S. non-oil imports would be subject to import restrictions. We only saw 1%. So the the big takeaway there was economic policymakers seem to get that trade policy restrictions, import restrictions are not beneficial. However, Both, you know, around the world, we saw other types of um, domestic stimulus policies. So, a big one was clash for clunkers in automobiles. So, trade in your old crummy automobile with a government subsidy, buy a new one. Um, The big thing we see fall in terms of consumption at the time of major recessions is automobiles. So, people stop buying washing machines, automobiles, big expensive consumer um, durables. So, Lots of countries around the world had these economic stimulus programs to get auto workers back to work, to get people working in washing machine factories back to work. So I think what we've already seen before COVID hit, when we look at the United States, is there was a huge rise of economic nationalism, very bring economic you know, manufacturing activity back to the U.S. And so there was this whole line from the Trump administration that we need more automobiles and you know, washing machines made in the U.S., So we were already seeing that they've boosted the rhetoric in the U.S. They're now saying, oh, it was terrible that our supply chains were extending back to China. And so there's, I think, a lot of support ideologically for the idea that government should somehow be subsidizing or putting other barriers in place to create more domestic production. And I think one of the, with COVID, what we've seen so far in terms of the economic nationalism front is when we look at medical supplies and we look at all the export restrictions. We saw these in the EU, we saw these in the US. All of these export restrictions on personal uh, protective gear, ventilators, this is something rather unprecedented in the post World War II era. I mean, there's been a few episodes in which, say, China at one point had some export restrictions on rare earth metals. Um, those were eventually removed because there were complaints, but this kind of we're taking care of number one attitude in terms of export policy is new, somewhat worrisome. The EU is still trying to sort out exactly how they're going to manage it because they tried to remove those restrictions across EU members only to place them on exports outside the union, which is you know very worrisome for developing countries and others who need that gear. I think what we will see in the short run as we leave the as we, you know, in this coronavirus episode, is although governments are going to be very cash-strapped, they're going to want to stimulate demand. And the way they're going to do that is they're going to try to provide... There's different ways they can do it. One, they could just have subsidies on the consumption side so that in Britain, if you want a new car, the government will somehow subsidize the price you pay. Um, The problem with that, if you're a government policymaker... Is that you could take that subsidy and buy a car built in another country, and that would be stimulating, you know, employment somewhere else. And so, when you're talking about public money, that becomes a little bit more concerning from the policymakers' perspective, from the economic perspective. It's getting the economy going globally. Um, if you instead put subsidies on the production side to get, you know, help the automobile makers, you know, in your own country and make the autos cheaper in that way. You stimulate employment and production in your own economy, but you're not necessarily doing the most cost-effective way. And so that also is sort of this kind of choosing our champions, picking which industries you want to um, stimulate. And so economically, we generally don't recommend, economists don't recommend the use of these types of industrial subsidies because that type of economic nationalism can actually be more costly overall for Public budgets for consumers, um, but I think that might be sort of a first step. And one of the, you know, Simon Evident at the University of Saint Gallen has been putting together this database for several years on the use of different types of subsidies by governments and and per- different types of incentives to reshore production. And so I think that's something we might see. The constraint would be with. The huge outlays that are going to be needed um, on the employment side right now, governments might be somewhat constrained in what they can do on in industrial policy. But I think that you know it's a it's a difficult issue because on the one hand we do know that big economic stimulus plans can put people back to work. On the other hand, this is question of is this the most effective way to use public finances.
1: So I wanted to go to some of the questions that are flying in through the Q&A, so thank you very much for sending those in, everyone watching. And Hosek, I was going to come to you, not because you are the one who pointed out that I was on mute, Um, I was already planning to do that. (laughs) Um, So Rory Smith has got a question saying, uh, COVID-19 has fractured some fragile supply chains and confronted developed world societies with how dependent they are on them. Will it lead to a rise in America First style policies that prioritise self-sufficiency over low prices across the developed world?
3: That's a very good question. Uh, I'm sure that other speakers will have a comment on this as well, but I think one of the big changes in COVID-19 is uh, the fact that I mentioned before about the lack of demand leading to lower trade, but fundamentally there's going to be one country that's going to get back on its feet first and who has the scale and the size that could actually impact the global economy as such, it's basically China. China is going to be out of the tunnel first, simply because it went into the tunnel first. So it's, it goes without saying that it will be out of the tunnel first. And we have already seen uh, careful, so- well actually uh, some signs of recovery. And, um, and I think with the backdrop, uh, of uh, the political response that we've seen in the last couple of years, not just by the Trump administration, but also by Europe and much of East Asia, around decoupling strate- strategic sovereignty and also continuing bifurcation, much due to the political risk, is going to continue in the perhaps in the first phase. But it is inevitable at some point that the demand in China is going to change the way business think. And to be honest, I think we're already there. And the thing is we are not really seeing onshoring on in the data or the early market indicators. What we are actually seeing is the business is diversifying. And if that means they are over relying on demand in Europe, yes, they are going to re- re- channel those resources into China where the demand is. If they have dependent on strictly one supplier that is in China, yes, they are going to diversify their risk, which could actually mean both onshoring as well as offshoring. And here's where I think it's going to be a little bit interesting because China is one of the very few countries that has not put a stimulus package on the table yet. I have a reason to believe it may not put a major stimulus package on the table simply because it's the first out of the tunnel, etc. It simply doesn't need to. And I think they're saving up the money for something else. I'm happy to uh, discuss more about this, but to put it bluntly, uh, UK investment in China is just 1% of UK's outward FDI stocks. Much of that is... Actually, um, half a UK investment is in a zero growth, low prospect area, which is Europe. And uh, another quarter is in United States. So in other, if you compare that, for example, to Germany, let put almost 15% of its outward FDI into China. Uh, the positive news is that we are not dependent on China opening up, which, is, which it is unlikely to do. Uh, in the uh, in the closest uh, in the in the coming political uh, cycle but at the same time it also means that we are going to see quite a lot of UK business turning their attention to China at least in the early stages of the recovery because that's where it's going to start.
1: Okay thank you very much Pauline, I wanted to to bring you in on this idea of kind of economic nationalism and um, supply chains being onshored um, and becoming more resilient and get your sense of kind of when we talk about that, practically, what does it actually mean? And what would that change mean for logistics and supply chains in the UK? And are there any signs that this is starting to happen at all?
0: So I think it depends very much. um, It depends very much on the country. And it depends very much on the products and the supply chains. Uh, As a whole I had to stress I've not seen evidence of massive uh, relocation to to the UK and and, you know these things take time anyway so you couldn't really uh, have a massive shift overnight uh, like that. I think what we've seen is diversification also in terms of production, Um, so a lot of production uh, in the UK was shut down or you know almost shut down during the crisis because of very low demand Uh, essentially. So then a lot of companies decided to uh, do different things and produce things that were in high demand at the time. So PPE, masks, um, and and, and so on, Uh, you know, gel uh, to to, to wash your hands, etc. And I think for for that, perhaps we'll see more domestic production in the future. But I think there's a factor which um, explains why China is so dominant. I mean, it's cost, uh, the cost of transport, um even, you know, when it rises, even when uh, things are, are not exactly properly balanced because you have you have a crisis and a capacity shortage in air freight, for instance, and so on, the cost of transport doesn't compensate for the difference in terms of production costs. And so, you know, China is still very attractive simply because you can get a lot more cheap products from China than you would be able to, I think, from China. Uh, uh, from the uk and again you know it depends very much on the on the type of product and it's difficult to uh, generalize um, i think there are certain products of course which will be well protected the ones that are protected by geographical indications uh, i mean something like scotch whiskey you can't really uh, produce it anywhere else so you know this is uh, or champagne or whatever these are things of course that uh, uh where well, you won't see uh, probably a huge uh, a huge difference because you can't, uh, because they are protected, uh, generally speaking. Um, other than that, um, I think yeah, costs are going to be may- maybe one of the limiting factors in terms of, uh, you know, you're not going to suddenly see the UK turning back to 19th century and becoming a massively industrial country again. Uh, I don't think that's in the cards for the future.
1: Okay. I think that's a relatively safe prediction. Um... So I want a lot of the questions coming through now around what does this mean for the UK and the UK's policy, which is where I would like to turn to now that we've discussed the kind of the, the more global picture. And um, Hosika, I was going to come to you first on this before coming to you, Clemens, which is, and I guess the question is, um, if the UK's Trade Secretary, Liz Truss, was to call you up this evening and say, OK, what does all of this mean for our policy? What do we need to do differently? What would your tips be? What would you think this means for UK policy?
3: Well, I have a bad habit of letting calls from plus 44 prefix to go to the voicemail, but if I was to pick <laughs> up um, and um, if she would be able to understand my very idiosyncratic Scandi, Japanese, continental European accent, uh, I mean, the, the message I think is pretty clear. Uh, we are looking at a very green period of trade policy, looking ahead. Uh, as I mentioned, there is no export-led growth um, for the time being, especially if you are focusing on Europe. And many of the trade negotiations we are going into now are suffering from similar a problem as the UK has when it comes to trade deficit. There is less growth to tap into and there are more defensive measures and there are going to be more calls for defensive measures. Basically, know UK as well as partners like the United States and certain European countries are suffering from current account deficits. And countries that have major pockets of growth are very reluctant of, about opening up. They just don't have the political capital to basically open up. We always think about counterparties as a monolith, but even an economy, for example, like China, has a very complex structure in terms of its political stakeholders. And there are very strong voices that is going to oppose opening up for even for a relatively small, I'm doing air quotes, um, for an economy like the UK. And so, which in other terms, which basically means that you know, most countries are going to look at stimulus-led return to growth. And I think if for the UK, that's a very poor case. Um, that's not really a, a fit, considering that UK already have a very, very high debt. and uh, Which brings her back the question about what can trade policy do? Well, I think recognizing the fact that she, well, I think she would hopefully admit that a trade minister is perhaps not the most important minister in a cabinet. Uh, and it certainly does not set the objectives, which is most likely set by the finance ministers. And to be fair, I mean, COVID 19 has unearthed quite a lot of problems around the world. And wherever it goes, it has actually amplified existing problems rather than creating them. And I think, in a sense, uh, trade policy is not an exception. Uh, trade policy is not going to actually be able to respond to these uh, changes that COVID-19 brought on in other areas of the economy, including Brexit. But it can bring on and support bigger domestic reforms that COVID-19 will unleash. So, which probably means, for example, that trade policy can support, but not lead in, for example, domestic digitalization, and other means of improving, even productivity. Uh, It can do certain things in the margin to protect FDIs and making investment in the UK more attractive. And it can also adjust certain over-reliances on certain economies for supply chain security issues that we've discussed. I don't agree that UK companies or European companies go to China for cost reasons. Because all the market data seem to suggest that actually China is a medium to high cost economy. Uh, for example, in the tech sector, China is actually more expensive than Japan to invest in. So and we also have to manage the question around relatively low growth growth prospect that the UK has over invested in, that I mentioned before. And that's going to be a huge challenge. And trade negotiation cannot bring about... Major deal, uh, well, major uh, large scale um, transformation of the UK economy that would actually support these objectives in in, in, um, yeah, in, in, the, uh, in the extent that public seem to expect in the UK. That's not what trade negotiations do. They can merely support it. And also, one thing that I would maybe add is that COVID 19 had basically no impact on the trade institutions. WTO, G7 and G20. Global economic governance, more than ever, is in the hand of those who have fiscal firepower and domestic political capital. UK and Germany, China, United States are not one of them.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, Clemens, I wanted to come to you now with your kind of uh, friendly, neighbourly advice from Germany to to the UK in terms of uh, trade policy after Brexit and there are a couple of questions so Richard Parker from Gowling has said what do you think coronavirus means for the UK's negotiating strategy will it actually limit our room for manoeuvre in our trade negotiations and then uh, we have had a question in also asking about the likely impact of coronavirus on the other negotiations so us and i think japan that we're looking to kick off um so what's yeah what's your reflection on what this means for uk trade policy in particularly the negotiations underway but we'll we'll leave the eu uh for uh, a little bit and come back onto that so just focus on the rest of the world if we can
4: Yes, um, I I would like to come back to the point that uh, Hosek raised on uh, that trade policy cannot be looked at in isolation. I think that has been true for a very long time, but it has been um, highlighted during this crisis. Um, uh, I I give you a a brief example uh, from Germany, for example, we are a federal country. Uh, Meaning that all the Bundesländer have uh, the major powers right now. They decide on measures being taken or not. And, um, Uh, one of the issues our companies um, had over the last couple of weeks were the questions of essential business. So basically some countries uh, require business to be deemed essential in order to uh, be open, to have uh, people working there. This is a concept we don't know in Germany. So uh, the German companies who have suppliers abroad or maybe even their own uh, factories abroad who need uh, these supplies, they, of course then need to uh, give the companies abroad a certificate that they are essential business which uh, we can't issue in germany which uh, the bundesländer who are don't usually doing trade policy are responsible for so there are interlinkages that we haven't thought of before that are coming um, more to the forefront and then there are also of course um changes or let's say um, there's, for example, a higher public demand uh, regarding sustainability that will impact consumer preferences. Uh, that will have, of course, a close interlinkage with uh, trade policy um, making um, all across all across the globe. So I think, uh, in from from that perspective, um, I agree with Hosuk that trade policy is not the uh, the one policy that will. Um, uh, be be the one to, to bring us out of this uh, crisis but it's an important one it um, and and there we have seen uh, both um, positive and negative trends I would say the the main um, the main benefit that a positive trade policy can bring is um, deliver the, the certainty uh, for business and um, to have, uh, for example, uh, global trade rules set by the WTO that all the countries abide by um, or have it on a bilateral basis uh, to have measures that can help uh, protect investment um, uh, and also to help companies have this uh, environment to, to diversify their supply chains not in as has been said not in in a way that means that you shift everything from one place to another but to make sure that you you have your value chains in a in a uh, in place in a robust manner in a uh, resilient manner. Uh, and Jose um, is absolutely right that uh, China has already moved farther on on the um, on the crisis than we have. So a lot of our companies are actually now making use of this to uh, use these suppliers to be there to produce which is needed right now. For example, uh, uh, PPE, medical, um, goods and here we we see some positive initiative we see that uh, many countries have reduced their um, tariffs on on these essential goods that are uh, really important to make sure people don't die uh, which i would say is a, is a very high priority uh, and uh, this uh, also has some momentum so many countries have done that unilaterally the uk has done that the u.s done that other countries have done that and um Uh, there is actually now also a group of countries that look into how to use the WTO pharma agreement which is a, a, a quite arcane agreement many people don't know about uh, existence since the 90s now there are discussions in how far that agreement which is limited to only a couple of countries and only to pharmaceutical goods can be extended to more goods uh, maybe services disciplines and also um, to more countries so there are positive uh, initiatives trade policy-wise that can help business um, tackle this crisis and where the UK, of course, um, uh, can put into its leverage. Now, um, looking at the WTO, the situation has been critical for quite a while. We all know that the uh, next um, trip we were all looking forward to to the ministerial conference in Kazakhstan has been canceled. So no conference this year. Um, meaning that many of the issues that are open regarding, for example, digital trade um, they are not being solved this year. Uh, a lot of uncertainty there are there's a um, a big discussion, for example on putting tariffs on on um, digital transfers um, that shows that there are a lot of countries that are um, uh, yeah not, uh not supporting the the global trading system in a way that would um would be required for for global business so here um uh, i would hope that the uk um, can play a positive role in convincing other countries to um uh, yeah keep the multilateral trading system alive to um, also push positive initiatives like, um, investment facilitation negotiations, e commerce negotiations, uh, a pharma agreement and other things. Um, And uh, if you allow at the end, I I would say, of course, this crisis shows, um, as I've said before, uh, a trend to regionalization. You can see it in the discourse in many countries um, and uh, also um, meaning that gravity and geography will be more important. Consumers are asking why does this Apple have to come from the other end of the world? That has been an issue for Um, uh, uh, a smaller part of the population before but right now um, at least looking at at europe and and germany we see um, this changing so i would argue that europe is um, a very important trading partner for the uk it goes both ways so it would be important to um, keep it that way
1: Good. So on that note, I think it's uh, given the questions, uh, it's hard to avoid uh, the Brexit question for much longer. Um, Meredith, I wanted to bring you in on this first. And there's been some talk that actually, um, whether it's uh, the deal, that the, the kind of loose arrangement the government's going for, even no deal, actually the impact of coronavirus on the economy and the global trading system means that actually the the blow at the end of the year that a lot of people are expecting could be softened as we move from the transition to this new relationship. I mean, do you think that's fair? Do you think that Brexit will just be a rounding error lost in the coronavirus noise um, if we leave at the end of the year, deal or no deal?
2: In some sense, yes. Any type of trade disruption is always a bit of a rounding error when we have a major recession. And in this case, we're looking at the largest recession of the modern era. In some ways, we can't even really quantify or compare this to what happened in the 30s because the economy is so different. But we're looking at a, a massive, massive recession. And so I think that what this means is that if, for example... The UK leaves the EU and there's no trade relationship, meaning that we go to WTO tariffs on both sides, and the UK uses its UK global tariff. I think the additional costs that the UK will face from those higher no-deal Brexit tariffs will be obscured by all of the damage generally being caused by, in the economy by the combination of two shocks. First, this major supply shock in which we've actually had to shut down production, And then the subsequent demand shock that comes when people have huge reductions in their income. And so demand shocks always have much bigger um, impacts than sort of tariff measures at the border. That said, one of the questions we ask as economists is when is it that a temporary recession, a temporary shock, so supply shock, a big aggregate demand shock, can permanently change the economy? And when can it have really lasting implications? And I think. My deep concern at the moment about Brexit is that if we look at any period between 2013 and 2016, if we look at the micro data from HMRC, we know that there's about 20,000 UK firms exporting to Europe more than 250,000 pounds sterling per year. And for these firms, if we count the number of detailed eight-digit products they're selling – we're looking at firm product combinations of each year, 2013 to 2016. Is when I looked at this, we have between 350 and 400 thousand firm products distinctly being sold from the UK to the um, EU. And this number, 350 to 400 thousand, comes from. In each year, we have about 80 to 90 thousand exits. So these are products that firms were selling in the EU that they just terminated. At the same, you know, so either their customer disappeared, the UK firm shut down, they stopped making that product, something happened. On the the other side, though, in each of these years, we have about 100,000 UK firm products being created. So new trade links being formed in individual EU countries. And so what happens when you have this kind of big aggregate demand shock is these customer to customer relationships between a firm in the UK and a firm in the EU. Many, many will disappear, either because the EU firm becomes insolvent and closes, the UK firm becomes insolvent and closes. There's some sort of supply chain issue. They can't make the product. But, but fundamentally, in recessions, we know that there are a lot of exits at the level of the firm. And so the question that worries me right now is if a Belgian firm goes you know, bust, how easy is it going to be for a UK firm to find a new partner in Belgium who wants to buy their product? Because any customer product, customer firm in Belgium is going to look at, well, if we have a no-deal Brexit, won't my life be much easier if my new relationship and my new supplier is in France or Germany? And so I think that the way the big temporary shock of the recession could materialize into a serious long-term negative consequence for the UK is if these customer-to-customer relationships get severed by the recession, and then at the time when firms are beginning to create new relationships, European firms turn to other Europe, continental EU member states to be their new supplier. And I think that's a real worry I have for the future of, of UK manufacturing. So that's something um, you know that, that's got me worried about what could happen with Brexit. I mean, reality... UK exports everywhere are going to decline. And so the decline in trade is going to be spread out everywhere. The additional decline in trade with Europe will be bad, but not nearly as bad as things like, you know, the complete decimation or, you know, for overall GDP in the UK, the complete decimation of the restaurant industry, of the tourism industry. These are going to be quite substantial hits overall. And so the losses we have at the border Will seem relatively small, but they could become permanent and have really lasting effects.
1: Pauline, I wanted to bring you in on this and whether or not um, for UK logistics uh, the impact will seem. Relatively small, because while you know as Meredith is looking at the aggregate view, presumably the the challenge at the end of the year looks pretty daunting to uk logistics when you pile brexit on top of this, and we've got a question from Flo actually who has asked to what extent you think uk logistics sector will be able to cope with leaving the brexit transition period on the thirty first of December as the industry attempts to recover from coronavirus.
0: So I think the coronavirus has actually changed things, uh, perhaps more uh, tremendously, certainly more visibly, uh, for logistics and supply chain practitioners uh, than it, you know, than um, uh, people might realize. So a lot of people were saying, "Oh yes, but you know, the industry had years to, to, to prepare for Brexit." Well, of course, um, it was difficult to know exactly what to prepare for uh, because there were very different versions of what uh, the future was going to to look like. Uh, And even today, I mean, there's there's still no um, border operating model in sight. So there's relative visibility as to, um, you know, what processes um, will be required on the EU side, because, of course, that's set in EU law and it doesn't really change. Um, And certain adaptations, uh, for for instance, for the Dover Strait, have been put in place already uh, last year before the no-deal deadlines. Uh, So that's relatively known. Of course, what's not known at this point, not to the same uh, level of detail, is exactly what will be required on the UK side. Um, and that has changed tremendously. So first, uh, when uh, the spectre of New Deal was there, we heard that there, there wouldn't be um, you know too much uh, import controls in the UK, uh, that there would be a very lenient approach taken to, to a lot of things. Uh, for instance, uh, sanitary and phytosanitary uh, controls um, on agri-food products and certain other products. Um, and that of course has changed. So in, uh, I think it was February, uh, Michael Gove announced that a completely different strategy was going to be put in place by the UK and essentially that uh, the same controls and requirements that would be required on export would be required on import as well. Now. That arrived more or less at the same time, as I I was explaining at the beginning, uh, people involved in uh, international supply chain movements were already, uh, you know, (laughs) up to their head underwater because of um, uh, the situation in China at the beginning and then the the situation uh, in Europe and and the the UK. So it was not the best of time uh, for people to start (coughs) preparing for something radically different, uh, to start investing massively in capacities to deal with, uh, customs requirements, for instance, uh, and that's why you know a, a lot of associations in the logistics sector, a lot of actors in the logistics sector, ask for an extension. Um, it's quite difficult. You will understand no doubt at, at the at, at a moment where you face a massive uh, shock and and uh, quite probable recession uh, to say to companies, well, okay, you've had to put uh, a lot of your workforce on furlough, you've had to make people redundant. And yet, you still need to uh, find the money and the time to invest in preparing for something that will come uh, at the end of the year. When, you know, all they care about uh, right at this minute is surviving uh, and making sure that they can uh, get to the next milestone and survive until the next month and and, and, and so on and so on. Um, so in, in terms... Um, of the supply chain uh, disruptions, I've heard, oh, well, you know, it's, it will be relatively similar to what we've seen with the coronavirus. Well, it's actually very different uh, because what we've seen with coronavirus where, um, you know, pr- yeah, production was down at some point and then it was issues in terms of uh, getting the goods uh, through because of, uh, you know, um, shipping uh, services being cancelled or pulled from the schedule uh, or capacity and enough rates being very tight. Uh, that kind of things. But what you'll what have, unless companies are well prepared and have all the documentation they need to have uh, and, you know, I've done all the formalities they need to go through, uh, they won't be able to come in and they won't be able to um, uh, go out and come into the EU either with their products. Uh, so that will be much more much more visible. Um, it's still difficult to know exactly what it's going to look like on the ground because, as I said, we're still waiting for a lot of details. Uh, it was interesting to see uh, that quite a lot of um, details on, for instance, the Irish protocol and how this is going to be implemented uh, were released uh, yesterday. Uh, you can see that gradually companies are starting to go back to Brexit planning. Uh, but it's very, very difficult in this very, very tight financial context uh, when you know, they don't know if they will survive, uh, what consumer demand is going to look like. Um, And as Meredith was explaining, uh, in some cases, don't even know if their supply chain partners are still going to be around uh, by the end of the year.
1: Brilliant, thank you very much. I'm very conscious of time and questions are still um, uh, flying in. Um, so I wanted to go to the question from Gwen Buck from Green Alliance, who uh, was the first off the mark, uh, and I apologise for taking a while to get to you, uh, which is a question around the UK government's COVID-19 recovery plan uh, aims to deliver a UK and world economy which is stronger, cleaner, more sustainable and more resilient after this crisis. So her question is, how can we ensure trade policy doesn't put more pressure on unsustainable production and supply chains, which themselves have been linked to zoonotic diseases. Who wants to take that? Hosek, Clemens, do either of you want to come in? How to ensure trade policy is sustainable after coronavirus? What are some of the things the UK government should be thinking about in order to do that and meet their um, ambitious uh, aim in their recovery target? Sure, I'll
3: jump in. In a public pandemic situation and a healthcare emergency, as we have seen right now, um, I think it's um, it's very clear that many of the uh, sustainability uh, aspects have been put on second order. Um, I very often bring out, for example, the point about uh, single-use plastics. And although there was a universal consensus against the use of uh, single-use plastics, we have to remember that the single-use plastics are the PPEs that is saving our lives at the moment. So obviously, uh, we are going through a period we are rebalancing some of the aspects uh, where we have been maybe a little bit dogmatic and realizing that there are there, there there is a lot of gray between uh going completely sustainable and environmental friendly and where we are right now so um the first point uh i would Put to this is that much of the recovery that we will see in the eu will have green pretext meaning there will be a lot of conversation around green recovery and i think we will come back to that uh, narrative very quickly simply because that's where the political capital is uh, does that mean that the trade system is going to be sustainable no it's going to be actually um, a better excuse for not just for Europe, but also for much of the world to step away from trade agreements that might threaten countries' country's current account. And uh, simply because the green pretext will give people reason to step off from negotiations and all, also limit the gains that the, your counterparts will get. So, yeah, that's
1: basically my, my take on that. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Meredith, you wanted to come in on that.
2: Yeah, I'll just add a a couple brief points. Um, The first one is if you looked at the UK global tariff schedule that they just announced will be the MFN tariffs um, uh, post-participating in the EU, They have brought down tariffs, a number of like green-type products. So there's some import tariff reductions for some green products. The other thing, though, is the real big issue here is the institution of of carbon VAT taxes. So if you apply value-added taxes to high-carbon products, you can then at the border, as you bring in imports, you can apply the same carbon-value-added tax to polluting or or very high-carbon footprint products. That's what the EU has proposed, and that's probably the most sensible way forward. Um, Doug Irwin has a great book on free trade, and one of his examples is this issue that um, fresh-cut flowers that come into Europe from East Africa travel on jets. And so you might think that this would cause them to have a very high carbon footprint because they use jet fuel to get to the final consumer. But when you compare the carbon footprint of these East African jet-traveling flowers to those being grown in the Netherlands in hothouses, it's actually that the, the flowers from East Africa have a lower carbon footprint and are more sustainable. And so we have to be very careful in how we define and create policies that are sort of pro-sustainability. And this is kind of very long and tedious technological technical process in which we define carbon footprints that incorporate production methods as well as transport methods.
3: I would just add here that the border tariffs on carbon will need to lead to some kind of simplification. Otherwise, they won't be applicable. We live in a world we can't even figure out where an iPhone is actually made. So, you know, figure out the carbon content is going to be either based on a gross simplification, which will either lead to retaliation or very expensive trade cases at the WTO, or it could just simply um, lead to a uh, a model that is based on, well, applying um, ETS, basically carbon trading, so forcing other countries to actually impose the same kind of prices. And that is not going to work for most of the emerging markets or the developing countries. It's not a EU-US question. This is actually EU against the rest of the world.
1: Okay, excellent. Final question, um, and I'm very sorry to all of those you've sent in questions that we haven't managed to get to. I wanted to give final question to Clemens, um, which is one that has come through from Anonymous, uh, which is... Uh, is COVID nineteen providing governments and global institutions the opportunity to rethink globalisation and make it more sustainable or more even more inclusive? Arguably, we haven't had a moment like this since Bretton Woods in 1944. So, how big a moment is this likely to be, Clemens? With our final word. <laughs> uh, thanks for this
4: uh, question. I think to every. <laughs> complicated question, there is a very simple and easy answer that is um, obviously wrong. So, um, <laughs> uh, I, I will not uh, try to do that. Um, yeah, when when the, the winds of change come, some build w- windmills and others uh, build walls. I think uh, these two types of reactions we are seeing right now, we uh, will continue to see in the future. Looking at um, the multilateral trading system, I mean, as I've mentioned before, uh, there is a lot of um, blockade going on. If you just look at, for example, the, the whole turmoil on the fishery chair last year, um, so it's very difficult uh, to see how we can get a multilaterally uh, forward again, the the multilateral system is is blocked by not just one country. Uh, there are different countries um, on on different levels um, that seem to prefer, as has been said, room of maneuver, um, being able to do nationally um, what they want to do, or at least have the impression of being able uh, to do that. So um, the political capital to um, bring forward uh, big initiatives here is is quite limited, which is a bad thing. Um, there are good uh, opportunities. We've talked about sustainability. There are other initiatives like a environmental goods agreement that we had nearly finished uh, a short while ago. There are ideas, for example, pushed forward by uh, New Zealand on, on ending um, um, fossil subsidies on a global level. Uh, Of course, there are fishery negotiations right now in the WTO to stop um, uh, subsidies, um, to stop actually illegal subsidies, so that should actually be an easy one. Um, Alas, we, we see that it is Quite difficult to move forward. So the the real alternative, probably it's it's not the best case, but it's uh, better than nothing. Is is this plurilaterally moving forward and uh, having coalitions that actually. Um, uh, not block trade, but see trade as an opportunity, uh, which is not a the solution to everything, but at least um, uh, is able to to ensure that we still have uh, free trade uh, after after the crisis. And um, I hope that um, also with a new director general being elected soon at the WTO, the WTO is part of this system and will not be pushed it aside Um, because in the end if you uh, um, uh, remove the Uh, If you remove uh, global rules for everyone and you uh, don't have rules that uh, are enforceable for everyone, um, it's the smallest that will suffer most. So the big ones will will have their go. And uh, that's why I think uh, that the initiative we have seen, for example, by the EU to bring forward an interim appellate uh, system, the um, unpronounceable acronym MP. Uh, IA is important and uh, I hope that uh, the UK also will be part of that. Uh, there there has been uh, rumors of big countries pushing others not to be a member of that. Uh, I think uh, it's important to um, show that uh, there is still uh, a wish by most countries to work together and not to isolate themselves. Um, uh, we have seen in the 30s uh, how that will pan out and but this is not good so um i, I would argue yes there are uh, opportunities and those uh, in charge of taking decisions they have to take them that's their responsibility
1: brilliant thank you very much Clemens. so we've covered a huge amount of ground this morning from the kind of impact on things like tariffs and soap tariffs all the way up to the big changes for global institutions thank you very very much For watching thank you very much to our excellent uh, panel thank you very much for listening um and we look forward to seeing you at an ifg live event soon
0: thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of ifg live please do subscribe to hear more and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk events